اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم علیس اللہ بکافن عبدہ Is not Allah sufficient for his servant? This is of course from chapter 39 verse 37. We have been continuing this dars uh, for a couple of weeks now. And as you all may know, many of us have rings engraved with Alayhi Sallallahu Bikafin Abduhu. Is Allah not sufficient for his servant? We also know that this was a verse revealed in the Holy Quran. And the first addressee is none other than the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Secondly, it was revealed again to the promised Messiah and we saw how it was manifested in his life. And for those of us who are Ahmadis, we see it in our lives all the time, how it becomes manifested. And that is of course because the word used here is abd, servant. As long as you and I make sure that we are the true servants of, the, of, of God Almighty, then this verse will apply to us just the same as it applied to Muhammad or Ahmad, both Prophets, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Ahmad Alayhi Salaam. So it in a way leaves a glimmer of hope for all of us, but it also adds a huge responsibility. And there are certain expectations that we should all have when we try to uh, look at this verse and what it truly means. The first and foremost is of course, it has a subtle implication of some kind of hardship some kind of difficulty. It is without um, these difficulties that this favor from Allah cannot come. So first and foremost is expect that a challenge, a difficulty, something so difficult and impossible will appear that you will not be able to overcome it in your own circumstance or in your own ways. No matter what happens, you would have to turn to Allah, you would have to leave it to Allah Almighty. And then of course the verse is then recited from heaven and then at every threat, Allah Almighty makes a way that was impossible for you to imagine, impossible for you to have fathom that this was the route that could have been taken, this is how Allah Almighty protected and, and made a way. And so, Hazrat Muslim in a very famous book um, writes this verse, and writes the entire book revisiting the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and showing that even before he was born, this verse could in essence summarize his entire life. That he was always placed before great challenges, difficulties, threats that were impossible to overcome by any human. And then at every instance, Allah Almighty made a way that he was able to um, find solace in the different methods that Allah Almighty had made those, those ways for him. Now, we already spoke about the time of his birth and how his father passed away even before he was born. That is, of course, one of the greatest trials for any child, for any, any person. And of course, Allah Almighty overcame that by placing the love of a father into his grandfather. Then we, we, we talked about his life as an infant or his infancy when he was only six months old and how every single... You know, caretaker was rejecting him. At the same time, Allah Almighty made a way where the one who was supposed to pick him was also being rejected. Eventually, he was matched with Hazrat Halima, who then took care of him. And then, of course, we spoke about the time of his wedding and how God Almighty had made a way that the proposal was made even though it was an unlikely proposal. A proposal that came that was absolutely impossible. He was happened to give, get a job 
uh, working for a wealthy woman. And it so happened that he was so honest and so truthful that when he returned, there was so much more income that the, the owner of this caravan was shocked and surprised. And of course, that was none other than Hazrat Khadija. Then through her friend, the proposal was made. His father was reached out to her father. And then eventually, the arrangements were made for marriage. So today, we're going to talk about the next phase, which is he was a poor man when he got married, as you all know. And she was very, very wealthy, as you also very well know. And to your surprise, this was also a very, very great trial, a great threat, a great challenge, so to speak. A trial is the best way to put it. Because for any husband who is put in this particular scenario, it could be a trial if they understand what Islam expects from them. If that expectation of Islam is not there, then it's a great life. And that's why before I get into the particular story, I want us to talk a little bit about what Islam says. What are those things that Islam has established as the rights of women, the responsibilities laid on men to care for their wives and their children? Where, what is that? What is that element there? So first and foremost, as you know, that let's understand why Islam stresses certain roles for men and certain roles for women. And the best way to understand this is go back to the era of our lives as human beings or you know, Neanderthals or whatever it may be, a time long ago when we lived as hunter-gatherers. The way we lived was such that each person, each individual fended for their own way. They had to go and find their own food. They had to find their own shelter. They had to live on their own. And it was at that time that we believe as Ahmadi Muslims that Hazrat Adam al-Islam came to the world to teach mankind how to live like communities, create a jamaat, a community so to speak. And he's the one who in fact taught them how to get out of these caves, live together as a society. But the secret was, each one of us had a different role, a different responsibility, in order for this society to thrive and to live and to survive. Because if each person was fending for themselves, trying to collect their own food and eat on their own, then there would be no progress intellectually, society, civil, whatever those progresses were, they would cease to exist. In the same way, in a, you know, in a smaller, in a, in a micro sense, that is how our homes are. If each and every one of us has a certain responsibility and a role, and we do it in our best possible way, we end up enjoying it. Just to give you an example, if anybody went on a vacation this last weekend uh, for Thanksgiving, you may have drove somewhere, you might have flown somewhere. I myself, for example, we drove to San Francisco. Now in order to do that, if I was expected to fend for myself and my wife was to fend for herself and the kids to fend for themselves, I don't know how we would make it to San Francisco and back. At least not peacefully. Because I know I would buy all the snacks that I want to eat, right? Make sure that they're very close to me in the driver's seat. I would probably turn the AC on really, really high. And the kids would be like, what are we doing? My wife would say, you know, so whatever those things were, if we all were fending for ourselves, we were not working together, understanding our roles. Who's going to pack and how are they going to pack? What's going to happen? So for example, I'm, I have the packing duty in my home. I know how to pack. I play Tetris very well. So I'm able to pack the car, pack the bags, whatever that is. And my wife does a series of other things. This is important because you have to understand if you have a healthy home, 
you have a healthy society. And all of those are based on this idea that there are certain roles that are given for a healthy and progressive society. Now, let's understand one thing. Islam does have certain basic and defined roles for men and women. But there are only few. The majority, if you ask anybody who's married, the vast majority is all about interpretation. It's all about figuring out whose role is where, in what scenario, what circumstance. For example, Hazrat Khalimusi Khamis, Ayatab bin Aziz, there's a narration that when he was in Ghana, and there were instances when um, guests were over in his home, and his home was very small, and there was no way for, the, for, the, for, the, for his wife to pass through the guest to get to the kitchen. So in any one of those scenarios, if their children's baby bottles needed to be cleaned and given to his wife, Hazur would do it himself. He'd go into the kitchen, clean everything, and then go and give it to his wife. It wasn't like he would say, no, let's, we all have to wait. My wife must do it, it's her role. Everything is in a gray area, vast majority. There are some basic fundamentals, but the vast majority is in a gray area. You figure it out as a, as a couple. And the moment you start putting down rules and laws, now the, the marriage starts to dwindle. It becomes a challenge. And that is why you cannot put those rules and laws, you have to do this and I have to do this, that creates challenges. So going back to this very basic understanding of certain roles, let's talk about one. The role of making sure that there is enough money for food on the table, that responsibility is placed on the husband. And he's expected to work, provide for the family, make sure that everyone is doing well in terms of clothing, food and general welfare. It's stressed so much that it says that if a woman, if a wife decides to work, if for whatever reason, if she chooses to earn a living, that income is hers. Every single penny, every dollar, everything. The husband cannot come home and say, how much did you make this month? Where's the check? Where's the money? It's mine. He cannot, not even for a single penny. He cannot say today, you better be cooking the food or you have to pay for today's dinner or you have to pay for the gas this week. Now, I know this is maybe shocking for some and maybe for others it's not. But it's important to understand. The reason why Islam has placed this on women or freedom on women and the responsibility on the men is so that the men understand their role in this particular you know, domestic life, in this life in the home. Now it's also possible that the wife wishes to work. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Islam encourages that. But the reason why Islam takes away that responsibility on women is one simple reason. The woman should have the freedom to choose what she wants to do. She should not be forced that because the husband cannot pay for this big house, she now has to work to pay for this house, but she really wanted to go and get an education. Or she wanted to take care of the kids. Or she wanted to do this or do that. She wanted to take care of her parents, visit her family, whatever it is. She wanted to do X, Y, and Z. But because there's a responsibility to pay for X, Y, and Z, she cannot do that. Islam says no. It takes that out completely. It says the responsibility for earning in this house, any house, is on the husband. Now again, out of the sheer grace and mercy of the wife, if she chooses to pay or give some money towards some of the income, there's no harm in that either. But that has to be her choice, and not the husband's. All of this is placed for a particular reason. If we understand this, then 
we'll understand that if you go back to the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and you compare what he has given us to any other religion, you will be shocked. There is not a single religion on this earth that gives this right to women, that whatever you earn is yours. All of them expect that whatever money comes into the home is the husband's job to decide where it goes. He is the finance minister. In Islam, that's not the case. The husband has to bring the money home and the, the wife is the one who runs the home. She decides what happens in that home. But he has to provide. There has to be a home there. It cannot be that the responsibility is forced upon X, Y, and Z. Instead, it should be in these particular roles. Now again, there's a lot of gray areas I mentioned. Where who cooks for what and who uh, you know, pays for this. All of those things can be decided between husband and wife. All of that stuff is understood. But the general idea, the general rule here is that Islam makes it clear that by freeing wives from the responsibility of providing for the house, they can be free to explore anything else. Education, earn money for a specific goal, a dream she may have, even decide to dedicate her full efforts to raising her family. All of that is up to her. Whatever she likes, she has the right to make that decision. It cannot be imposed by the husband. Now, I'll give you an example. In the islands, for example, we were there and women began to join Islam first. It was a very interesting, weird era that we went through. There were a lot of children and a lot of women who started joining Islam. They started wearing the scarf, they started coming to the maz, and I became a challenge because there's you know, three or four missionaries, or you know, two or three missionaries, there's five or six qudam and atfal, and then there's like 30, 40 women, different ages, old, young, whatever. And there's a lot of kids as well. And so when we started this off, Immediately, we were a bit shocked and we kept preaching, we kept sharing the message, they kept coming and they kept joining. Um, and so we had our Sadr Lajna, who was a local member, and she would convert them, and give them the teachings, whatever that was. Eventually, we got to a point where um, the men started to come. They started joining one by one by one by one by one. And so all of those women that were there, all of their husbands or boyfriends or whatever, whatever relationship they had, brothers, cousins, uncles, they began to join. And so one day I sat down with one of the most pioneer ladies. And I said, you know, what was this whole story? Last four years was interesting. We started off with ladies and then now the men are joining now. What, what really happened? And then she said, look, the truth is that we were observing this masjid. And how you and your wife would come in and out. How you treated your wife. How you didn't spend all your money on booze, right, and alcohol how you would take the money home, how you would buy her things, you would take care of her, you would take her out to eat, you would walk with her for salat. We said we saw this and we envied it. We said we want this in our lives. We want to live like this. We don't want our husbands beating us. We don't want them to spend all of our money. They're making us work all day long. They don't have any share in our income. They take all the money we earn. They said we were sick of it. So we said, you know what, we're going to embrace Islam first and then we'll bring them along one by one. And that is how they transformed their society. I didn't even know it. We didn't even know what was happening behind the scenes. But they noticed that beauty of Islam. And so this is exactly what is found in Islam that we just have to extend and share with those around us. Now again, if we go back to the trial that was for the Holy Prophet Muhammad 
It was such a trial that he was, of course, a poor man while his wife was wealthy. And the principle in Islam, as you have now understood, is that he has to provide for his family. But he didn't have enough wealth to be even close to equal than his wife. So, and he also was never going to speak to her. He was never going to demand her money, right? He was never going to speak to her. He was never going to tell her this is how he felt, or that he couldn't provide for the home. He was going to allow her, it's her money, she can do whatever she wants with it. He was never going to say anything. But of course, his income was going to be vastly less, or you know, much, more, much less compared to hers. At the same time, she loved him. She married him for the person he was, for the character he had, for the, for the love he shared. And of course, she was a successful businesswoman. It wasn't her fault either, that she had a lot of wealth. But the dynamics of having wealth, this kind of imbalance in the home, did create a challenge. And it only creates a challenge when the couple gives more importance to the wealth than the love they have for each other. That's the key here. And for them, it was the, the love they had. The husband and wife, the trust, the marriage. That was far more important than all this wealth. And, and so it happens. Same thing. Allah Almighty changes the hearts, brings them along, creates those trials, but those, I mean, removes those trials by creating these new pathways. And so one day, Hazrat Khatija came to the Holy Prophet Muhammad. She said, I want to say something. He said, What is it, Khatija? She said, I've decided to turn over all my wealth, my provisions, and even my slaves to you. So he responded, Oh Khatija, have you even thought about what this would mean? Because if not, then later you might have immense regret. So he's warning her, right? He's saying, Have you thought about this? No pressure from me. It's completely up to you. But have you thought about it? And if you do it, then don't regret it later on. What I do with it then? Think about it, right? She said, I have put a lot of thought into it. No matter whatever happens to this wealth. Again, see, it doesn't matter to me. Let it be. I will turn it over to you. Everything. It's all yours. Now, all of you heard what she had. She had wealth, provisions, and slaves. And I know for a fact, the moment you heard that, being Americans and the things that we've learned, the first thought in your mind came to, please free the slaves, right? Naturally. Why would she have slaves? It's just a natural thought that comes to our mind. But here's the interesting thing. When you read this story, and you read the next line, he says, if that's the case, then the first thing I will do is I'll free all of these slaves. That was how much foresight the Holy Prophet Muhammad And if you don't realize what that meant, each slave is worth a certain amount of money. And just to free them without them earning it back or paying you back or whatever that is, he did it out of a principle of freedom. Freedom of conscience and religion. We talk about that all the time. But who can show this example? When they're given a gift of million dollars worth of slaves, and they turn around and they say, the first thing I'm going to do is free them. Just because they are allowed to be free. They're human beings. It's an amazingly beautiful story. And so what do we see next? 
Because the Khadija didn't say anything. Now there was one challenge though. Remember? There's still trade caravans. There's still ways for them to trade and make more money. What do they do next? They still need somebody's help. But again, he's freed all the slaves. Right? They're all gone now. They're free to do what they want to. But they still, he still needs a companion, somebody to help him. What happens? One of the slaves says, I'm not going to leave. You are one of the greatest people I've ever seen. Your character, your morality, everything is so beautiful, so amazing. There's no way on earth I'm going to leave. I'm going to stay with you. And that was Hazrat Zaid. That is exactly how Allah fulfilled that second need as well. The companion. And so of course we understand that this was that moment, one of those moments where Alayhi Salaam bi Kafin Abdu played a role once again. As a Khalifa Sisani Azizan writes this, he says, It was that moment that God said, O oh Muhammad, you could not be okay to live off of your wife's income. You wouldn't be okay with it. So, we put it into your wife's heart, that love for you, that transcended all of this material wealth, that's how I've paraphrased it, but anyway, he says, so she put it before you herself. Then after freeing all the slaves, you still needed a companion to join you. So we placed in the heart of one, the love of your moral standard, that he remained with you even after being free. This is why when we look at the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, when we make that claim that he was that perfect man, the Master Prophet Muhammad wasallam, this was because he was shown the mercy of Allah through the manifestation of this beautiful verse, time and time again. Every time a difficulty came, Allah Almighty showed him that Allah Almighty exists and that there is a way to him. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammadin wa barik wa sallim inna ka hamidu majid.